Hi everyone and welcome back to Love Yourself Without Likes. My name is Molly Segi, and today I have a very special guest all the way from Yerushalayim, Dr. Aviva Goldstein. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so do you want to introduce what you do? Sure, sure. Um, so first of all, I just want to say I think you are a total superstar in this project. I think it's amazing. And I know that you're the interviewer, but I have a thousand questions for you. But I'll, I'll be patient. I'll, I'll put that on hold. Um, so I am based in Jerusalem and I have a private practice where I do individual and family counseling. Um, and I end up working with um, really little kids and older kids. I work a lot with parents. Um, sometimes it's whole family stuff. The biggest part of my practice is probably gap year students, mm -hmm. um, you know, people that come from the U.S. that are in yeshiva, seminary, or different gap year programs, um, and I think it's, like, a fascinating age, like the 1819, like, post-high school, pre-college transition. Mm -hmm. um, I love it, and I feel really honored um, that I get to share a lot of people's sort of inner lives with them. Mm -hmm. um, as I do, I teach, I lecture, I do workshops, I consult. Um, mm -hmm. I think I hit the jackpot. I think I have the best job in the world and that's I love, so cool. love, love it. So that's, it's, it's pretty cool that I get to say that. <laughs> yeah, you do it around the world, right? Or it's just... And mostly U.S. and Israel. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. That's so cool. Especially with Corona, you can, you know, travel yeah. virtually in many different yeah, ways. That's true. <laughs> So I, I, thought, I think it was very interesting to find out that you did like family and parenting also like counseling because most, most of my, the therapists I've talked to kind of, I mean, not really, but they talked about the kids ourselves. Like I'm talking about kids my age. So I think it's interesting to see the perspective of how parenting and like the family unit as a whole kind of gets affected by it. So I guess I'll start off with those questions. So the first question is, how do you feel social media has changed parenting? Yeah, so I think we'll find a pattern over the course of our whole conversation that like with many things, there's like the good and the ugly, you know, they're like two, two sides of every, um, every one of these issues that we're going to talk about. And I think in some ways, social media has actually been amazing and a blessing for parenting. And in other ways, it's kind of like a deep, dark hole that we yeah. kind of wish we didn't go down. Um, the way that it's helpful, I think, is, um, first of all, People can connect with each other, um, friends that might be either just too busy with parenthood and life and whatever, or they're geographically living far away. They can still maintain that connection, um, even in those years when staying in touch might be hard as a young parent. Mm -hmm. um, so people can definitely maintain or even create relationships in some ways. Um, you know, there's unprecedented access to information and resources um, which again has the plus and the minus to go along with it because on the one hand, like you could just Google one thing and diagnose your kid with like 19 different <laughs> awful disorders and like none of them are true, but like you looked it up. So, okay. Um, but there's also access to information that I think parents a generation or two ago didn't have access to that kind of information. And I think that's really, um, empowering and enriching, but it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard in many ways also because um, parents are not immune the same way that teenagers are not immune mm -hmm. um, to like the comparing and the gross feelings and the edited lives and, you know, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, a friend of mine, Jessica Abel, wrote a book a few years ago um, called Unfiltered, How to Look as Happy, How to Be as Happy as You Look in Social Media or something like that. Um, and so I did, I, I wrote a few chapters with her. It was a really fun project to work on with her, but she, she coined the term compare and despair. Um, that people go online, you know, in whatever social media channel they're going on, and you can't help but compare yourself. And like the 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 partner with the compare is the despair. So mm-hmm. is my kid not measuring up, or why is my kid not as pretty, or why does my house not look as good as that house does? And you know, all that stuff. Parents are not immune, um, the same way that their kids are not immune to it. And um, you know, I think it, I think it poses a big challenge. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I had my mom and her friends on. The show and we asked we asked a bunch of questions about like do you compare yourself and whatever I didn't realize I was I was kind of like in my own world I was like how could you possibly compare yourself but they were also talking about what you just said about like comparing your house you're comparing like it's just like a different level of comparison between totally what's going on with us. I've listened to a bunch of your episodes. I listened to that episode. I basically laughed the entire time because they're hilarious. I wish (laughs) I was friends with them in high school. Um, Maybe in full disclosure, we should share that I lived with your mom and your Aunt Eva in college. Um, But their their high school friends seemed like very fun. But yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, look, there's another piece of it, which is um, there's a a concept, a theory, a term that was developed many years ago, um, the difference between being a digital native and a digital immigrant. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of those terms? Yeah. No? Okay. So a digital native is essentially your generation. You were born into a reality that had technology and the internet and social media and phones and laptops and all that stuff. Um, and, and me and your mom and our generation are digital immigrants because we didn't grow up with it. We had to learn it like any other immigrant would would have to learn. So there's a language to it and there are cultural norms to it and there are certain expectations and behaviors and standards. Um, And and the, the reason that gets complicated is because culturally in every generation, the younger generation is gonna know something more about something than their parents. Um, But this is so pervasive. Social media technology in general is so pervasive. Um, And so it it complicates like the dynamic between parents and kids um, when parents are trying to be the ones to sort of instill values, but their kids have actual more knowledge about how these work. Um, And it's it's a, we find a lot of really interesting, sticky, interesting scenarios that come up because of that. It's, you know, you can't, you can't discount how much of an impact that makes. Yeah. It's like when, when, whenever there's something wrong with someone's iPad or whatever, Kate, my youngest sister is always the one to do it. She's like, she's a digital native, as you say. Totally. I would, I want, I want to quote, I want to like link Jessica's book. Can you tell me the name? Yeah, for sure. Oh, she'll be so happy. She's a, she's a, actually, she's a friend of mine from high school. Um, so it's called Unfiltered. I'm happy to send you the link. Okay. Thank you. Um, so you can get it. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people would enjoy that a lot. So talking about how like digital native and digital um, immigrant, how do you see social media affecting the family unit as a whole? It's such a great question. Um, And I don't think there's one full answer. That's the truth. Um, I'll talk about the good stuff first. The good stuff is, you know, includes things like, um, I mean, from my own personal experience, we made Aliyah and we had little kids and Mm -hmm. our little kids became bigger kids and then we had more little kids. Um, But all of my kids 
felt that they were able to maintain a connection with their grandparents, with whom they're very close, with their aunts and uncles and their cousins because of social media. Um, and, it, you know, everybody has a different definition of where the parentheses are of social media. But if we're including FaceTime and WhatsApp and WhatsApp video and all those different parts, in addition to Snapchat and TikTok and Facebook and, you know, Instagram and all that stuff, um, you know, my little ones were able to recognize their grandparents and their great grandparents on a screen um, so that when we were physically together, they wouldn't hesitate and there'd be hugs and kisses and smushing each other because they, they had that familiarity from FaceTime. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like sort of selfishly, you know, I, I feel like my family owes a lot um, yeah. to Apple. Um, but also there are other things, you know, there's certain conversations that teenagers don't want to have with their parents or certain things that parents don't want to have to directly say to their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they end up texting each other. Yeah. And like different people will have different opinions about, you know, whether you should have important conversations over text or not. And that we can debate it. I, I definitely see both sides of the, of the conversation. Um, but I think that's a huge impact. Um, the fact that we can sort of say the things that we need to say in a way that doesn't make us feel super uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Not that there's not value in awkward and uncomfortable. I think there's a lot of value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that sort of, you know, so you can have these kinds of connections in that way. Um, and then of course there are the downsides, you know, what has happened to this, you know, the American dream of the family dinner, you know, mm-hmm. when everybody's just sitting on their phones or if they're even at the table at the same time, you know, it's like cliche at this point. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely invasive a little bit and it's sort of corroding some of the family unit. I, I'm not somebody that poo-poos the whole thing at all. Um, but I think like with anything, there needs to be sort of a, a, a thoughtfulness about it, a, a moderation to how we're using it, an yeah. intentionality to using it. Um, I think it's possible to have a really healthy family relationship with social media, but you have to be intentional about it, I think, in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So what do you think a moderation would be for a family? It's a great question. You have a lot of good questions. Um, <laughs> so when I do lectures and workshops all over the place, one of the things we talk about is building um, a contract with your family. And I really don't believe that one size fits all, like with almost nothing, not with education, not with religion, not with raising children, and not with technology and social media. I really do not believe in one size fits all. Um, but what I do believe in is the idea that whatever size fits your family but you can custom make the boundaries, the structures, the contract, call it whatever you want to fit your family. So for instance, one idea that I always share when I go around teaching is the idea of creating a no phone zone. No, no phone zone can be a zone of space or a, a zone of time. So your family might decide our no phone zone is um, the car. So anytime we're in the car, it doesn't matter if it's a long drive or a short drive, nobody's on their phones. Mm-hmm. Why? Because when I pick you up from school and you're on your phone and I say, hi, honey, how's your day? You're like, fine. You have homework? <laughs> no. How's your test? Fine. Now, even without the phone, you might still grunt one word in my direction because you're a teenager and that's what teenagers do. Mm-hmm. But at least there's the option for some other form of engagement as opposed yeah. to if everybody's on their phones, there's like not even a conversation, right? Yeah. Um, for other families, that might be a disaster. And they would say like, oh my gosh, please do not tell me. I cannot use my phone in the car. If I'm the parent, if I'm the kid, I don't care. Like our car cannot be a no phone zone, right? And so for them, they might say, um, you know, we need a no phone zone that's a, that's, that's a time, not a space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, mealtime. Anytime somebody's eating, you know, they're not allowed to be on a screen. And I don't care if you're eating alone. I don't care if you're eating as a family unit. 
Um, other people might have totally different ones, a bedroom, let's be honest, a bathroom, mm -hmm. right? So every family might figure out what works for them. Um, but I do think that at being thoughtful about it and intentional about it and talking about it and thinking about it is what makes it moderated, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just a free-for-all. It's not total impulsivity. Um, but it's, there's a moderation and a decision about when, how, and where we'll use it. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I'm going to talk to my family about implementing a no phone zone. Cause that's a okay. Good. Don't get me in trouble, but I'd be curious to hear what you guys decide. Also like on Shabbos, that's kind of our like Friday night dinner. Like if you, we don't use our phones on Shabbos period, but that's also kind of for Jews. I think that's good for a no phone zone. If like, I don't know, it's like reference to Shabbos. If your family does it best on Shabbos, having good conversations at dinner, then your no phone zone should be at dinner. Yeah, hundred percent. It also for people who do that. Um, it, I mean, it sounds maybe like an exaggeration to state it this way, but like, it shows us that it's possible, mm -hmm. right? Like we are capable. Those of us who don't use a phone on Shabbos, we are clearly capable of it yeah. because we do it for those twenty-five hours. So don't tell me you cannot do it on a Tuesday night for forty-five minutes at dinner. Yeah. It's a question of do you want to? Is it a priority? Is it a value? And for some people, it will be, and for others, it won't be. Um, but interestingly enough, there's like a kind of like a trendy thing happening now. Um, it started in Hollywood and it's making its way elsewhere. Um, it was really started by this woman named Tiffany Schlein, who's, she's kind of a kook, but she's one of these like brilliantly creative kooks who just comes up with these unbelievable ideas. She sort of stumbled upon positive psychology and Judaism at the same time. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little while. Yeah. Um, but she instituted for her family what she called the technology Shabbat. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, it's not a halachic Shabbat. I think they're doing grooming and, you know, I think they're speaking on their phone to their grandmother, right? But the idea is like, we're not on any screens. Uh -huh. um, and it's become a trend, even in the non-Jewish world to say like, whoa, like, let's take a break. Let's take 25 hours. They're not counting three stars and nobody's lighting candles. Uh, but the idea is to say like, guys, our brains, our souls are not meant to be on all the time, you know? I think um, it's, so it's like a cool thing. It's interesting how like some of our Jewish values, like I would say most of them, but they're timeless. Like they could, people are starting to adapt to the times and to, and people are, whatever. I always think it's so interesting that like we always did it first. <laughs> um, so my next question is, how does an adult's social media usage affect how their children use social media? That's it's great. That's great. Um, you know, it goes back a little bit to the conversation about like, your mom and her friend, but um, it, in theory, right, we believe that parents set the tone for their family and for their children. And in many ways, that's the case with social media or just technology use in general. Um, you know, they really model what becomes normative behavior for a family. And so what's normal in your home may not be normal in my home, but you think it's normal because your parents are doing it and my kids think it's normal because I'm doing it. And that's just how we grow up. And it's not just with screen time, it's, it's with anything. Um, the challenge though, and this goes back to some of the digital native and the digital immigrant is, I'll, I'm gonna call it the moms because I think moms are more guilty of this than the dads, but I really don't mean to be like gendered. I'm not starting, I'm not picking a fight. But like, there are a lot of parents that are, um, I would say maybe inappropriate with their social media use mm -hmm. in a way that their kids are smart enough to know not to do, 
like how many moms do you know are doing like a major overshare on social media, right? And they think it's fine. Oh no, because I'm only friends with on Facebook with people that I'm actually friends with. So it's not really public, mm-hmm. but like you ask your average 10th grader, you ask your average eighth grader even, and they know that there's no such thing as privacy in social media. Yeah. They know that if I send a picture, there's a good chance it's going to get to somebody else's hand, right? So like on the one hand, the parents can set the tone in terms of, let's say a no phone zone, if it's the car, if it's the mealtime, if it's whatever. Um, but at the same time, I, I see a lot of parents that are modeling behaviors that I think their kids know better. Um, doesn't mean they always do better, but I, I think they realize sort of discrepancy between like what the parents know and what the kids know. Mm-hmm. With that said, I think parents can be very helpful in terms of navigating like the social complexities of the social media stuff because being left out is being left out and it doesn't matter if you were raised in the 60s doesn't matter if you were raised in the 90s doesn't matter if you're raising kids in 2020 nobody wants to feel left out right and so i think parents can be enormously helpful in that in that sense um you know how do you navigate those really complex social scenarios Mm -hmm. um because because that also i think is timeless i don't it may be exacerbated. It may be, you know, more in your face if it's on your phone in your pocket. Um, but being left out is being left out. Being made fun of is being made fun of, you know, sort of the uglier sides of social media. I think that stuff is sort of timeless in many ways. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So I know you talked about before how you work with gap year students. So yeah. what differences do you see in social media usage with gap year students versus high school? Um, yeah. Well, this year is weird. I think we can all agree. Like 2020, like the hashtag is just like weird, right? Like weird year. Um, but I think especially for, for the students that came to Israel, knowing that Corona was already happening when they got on that plane in August or September, but also not knowing what that would mean in practice about how the year was going to play out. Um, you know, you, you can see what other people are doing. And it's not just a question of they didn't invite me, but mm-hmm. also like, I'm not allowed. Like I can't go out to dinner. I, my school is not letting me go to town or this capsule is allowed to do this, but this capsule is in quarantine. So it, it like you add the layers of Corona to all of this stuff. And I think it's even cuckooer than it would have been under what I would call like quote unquote normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that stuff still exists in a very high schoolish kind of way. Um, the part that I think gets really interesting is, um, you know, a lot of students come to Israel for the year and they get like a bad rap for like, you know, quote unquote, flipping out, right? <laughs> um, and some of it, it's like, guys, like you cannot become somebody else. Like you have to be who you actually are. I don't care what you're wearing or what you're eating. Like you gotta be who you are. Mm-hmm. But some of it, makes a lot of sense, right? Like it's the first time that most gap year students are really out of their parents' homes, mm-hmm. are away from their community for the longest amount of time in a very immersive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the time of our lives developmentally where anyways, we're trying to figure out like identity formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all kinds of different things end up showing up as like proof. You see, he's flipping out. You see, he went off the derach. You see this, you see that. And, and, 
I find that phone use and screen time and social media ends up being one of those things. Like, is her skirt longer or shorter? Is he wearing this yarmulke or that yarmulke? What is he doing in social media? Right? It's like a very few number of things, but I find that it's one of those things that gets sort of picked apart. Mm-hmm. And some of it, when students in Israel for the year sort of pull back from their social media, people assume it's like, oh, they're so from, really? They think they're so from? I'll show you pictures of them in 11th grade, right? That's not so from, right? But some of it is like just trying to figure themselves out, right? And it's very hard to figure yourself out when you're completely connected to your adolescence in your parents' house and from high school. So some of it I actually think is a very, very healthy thing to sort of just get that distance um, between you and your childhood as you sort of figure out, what am I doing as an adult? Um, and other, they really stick with it. And it's like super high school-y. And it's, you know, massive smiles and duck faces and kiss poses. And the second the phone is away, like, the smile is gone. Like, it's totally phony baloney, right? So, you know, it depends. They see it in different ways, um, in, in, different, in different contexts. I mean, there's also, again, like another weird dynamic, which is like, and this is whether you're in Israel for the year or whether you go straight to college and you're not living at home. Like if you are friends following whatever the verb is, if you're connected with your parents and any of your social media stuff, then like, what does it mean you went off to college or you went off to Israel? If your mom sees you in every picture that you're tagged in or that you're posting or whatever, because like, does she call you out on that weird thing you posted? Does she not call you out on that weird thing? You Like, where's the distance in order to formulate my own identity, right? On the other hand, as a mom, like, yeah, I kind of do want to keep tabs on my kid, you know? So I, I could see it going both ways, um, but it's complex. Like, I don't think there's a simple, a simple answer, you know? But I, I know it's not really a comparison, but I have Life360 on my phone, and my mom, like, I hate it. I don't know why. Like, it's not even that she even looks at it anymore. I don't even know if she does, but I literally just hate the idea of it. So it's kind of like that. She says, like, she uses it when... Um, in ninth grade, I would go on the bus home from school and she would pick me up from the bus stop. So she would use it to, to see how many minutes ho- away from home I am so she knows when to leave the house. But like, mm-hmm. even that, I was like, I'll text you. Like, it's just, I don't know. I just don't <laughs> like it. Like, I'm not doing anything. I just like, I don't know, just having that, sharing everything. I just feel like by sharing, I understand that a lot. Um, yeah. There's also like, I'm not advocating that people like make trouble and get into trouble, but I do think that some of the more important life lessons happen in those moments. Mm -hmm. Like, how did I get myself into this pickle? How am I going to get myself out of that pickle? Who can I call on? How do I know how to be resourceful? Um, All those kinds of things happen very often from trouble. Mm -hmm. And if everything is just a text away from my parents, I don't really have a lot of space to experiment. I don't, I don't really have opportunity to learn resilience and grit and messing up and learning from my mistakes, which is another, another sort of, you know, there's interesting research. I don't know if you've heard of Jean Twang, but she's done some really, really fascinating research um, on intergenerational stuff. Um, and she's really known for um, her research on what she calls iGen. Mm-hmm. kind of like iPhone, iPad, so she calls it iGen. Um, there was a big article in The Atlantic, and she has a book. I think it's by the same name. I think it's called iGen. And her research found that, I'm going to see your generation, but I know it makes me sound like I'm 400 years old, but like in my head I'm still 22, so I'm not thinking it condescending way at all. But like, you know, quote, unquote, your generation is among the safest, the physically safest generations um, in a very long time. 
statistically, um, drunk driving is down, partying, drinking, smoking drugs is down, risky sexual behavior is down. Um, why? Because no one's going, not no one, but the numbers are significantly down from when we didn't have phones and we would go out and hang out in a parking lot or we would go to somebody's house for a party or we would do all kinds of things. Um, and so obviously, we want our kids to be safe 100%, right? But the, the downside of that in her research, she points out that like it's because there's just a lot of 17-year-olds sitting on their bed with a few screens open. Like that's how they spend their weekends. That's how they spend their Saturday nights. And so it's this real conundrum that I think society is going to have to grapple with a little bit to say like, yes, of course we want our teenagers to be safe. That's not even a question, but like at what cost, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, 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 I, Jen, I would, I would definitely, um, I'm looking into some of her work, Jean Twang. She's done some really, really important research into understanding sort of the impact, the good, bad, and ugly, um, of what this, what this means for, you know, quote unquote, your generation. Yeah, so I'm gonna link that. That's really cool, I'm gonna look into that. Okay, um, so I was reading on your website before that you do something called positive psychology. So what is that? <laughs> I do, I do. Okay, so first of all, I will also name drop, I know you had Benji Epstein on um, mm-hmm. recently. He's also a buddy of mine, so he's also into positive psychology. I mean, really, really summarized on one foot Traditional psychology looks at all the stuff in our lives that's not working. Um, Disease, disorder, dysfunction, disability. Um, And it kind of tries to understand all of those things in our life that are not working, that are a little bit broken. And they use neurology and history and biology and sociology and all kinds of different modalities in order to understand that. Like very unfairly summarized, that's basically traditional psychology. Um, And about 30-ish years ago, um, this guy named Martin Seligman, who is the president of the American Psychological Association and also happened to be one of the most preeminent scholars into research in depression, ironically, mm-hmm. um, he started a field called positive psychology with the theory that if we can understand the stuff in life that's not working, can't we also understand the stuff in life that is working? Mm-hmm. Like if we can understand scientifically depression, can we also scientifically understand empathy? And like, if we can understand relationships that are broken, can we understand relationships that are thriving? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a really, really fascinating field. Um, I, I will say sort of just like, a, I don't know, I, I just feel like I have to put it out there. In many ways, it gets sort of dumbed down and watered down. Um, and it seems like a hippy dippy, you know, self help, feel good, like voodoo science. It's really not at its core. It's like very serious um, research based. Um, but they were able to find some really, really important correlations um, with what we would call happiness. It's what positive psychologists would call life satisfaction or well being. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically saying, like, how good do I feel about my life? That's happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, And they were able to find not necessarily causes for happiness, but very, very significant correlations with happiness. So things like um, empathy, gratitude, optimism, mindfulness, like with Benji, um, understanding your character strengths, different things like that. The, The more optimism you have in your personality or the more empathy you have in your character, the more likely you are to be satisfied with your life. Mm-hmm. which is like fascinating because it totally expands and broadens our understanding of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and going back a little bit to what you were saying before about like Shabbos and, you know, seeing sort of the, the crumbs of Judaism and a lot of the stuff that's going on today. I fell in love with positive psychology when um, I was a young graduate student at Yeshiva University um, because every study that was introduced to me or every piece of research that I was exposed to, I was like, oh my God, this is totally Judaism. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this is exactly what the Torah has been saying for thousands of years about yeah. what it means to live a good life. So I, it's a game of semantics. The science is supporting the Torah. The Torah is supporting the science. I don't care who you want to put in what part of the sentence, but if essentially positive psychology is scientifically proving, let's say, what Yiddishkeit has been trying to set out for us. Which is like, I don't know, I used to get goosebumps, you know, sitting in Dr. David Palkovitz's class being like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, so I love it. I love it because it shows up in so many different places. It makes so much sense once, once we really think about it. Um, and yeah, that's on, on one foot. That's basically what positive psychology is. Oh my God, that's really cool. I didn't, I didn't even know about that. Like I just... That's crazy. So how do you think that positive psychology can help teens fight their issues with social media? Yeah, it's a good one. So first of all, I'll just say, I, I, as positive psychology is getting more known, um, the education world is like all over it. Mm-hmm. Corporate world also to certain degrees, but, but I have found that educators like eat it up. And the good news is that that means that there's a lot of positive psychology happening in schools and definitely in Jewish schools. It's happening a lot that I see the schools that I work with, um, that they're finding ways to integrate stuff. Cause it's like, it's kind of like an easy sell, like, Oh, of course we should do this. Or of course we should do that. Like that's part of our value system. So now we're just going to really implement it in a more structured kind of way. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that I think a lot of teens now are being exposed to a lot of the good stuff, let's say, of positive psychology, mm-hmm. um, in a way that I'm hoping will help them navigate a lot of the tougher stuff mm-hmm. that even 10 years ago, I think students weren't exposed to. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news. I, how does it help? I, I think it helps because once you know what the ingredients are, potentially, for like just to be satisfied with your life, then you know what to pursue. Doesn't mean we're always good at pursuing them. Doesn't mean we're always good at prioritizing them. But at least we know sort of what are the ambitions here? Like what is it that I'm after? And I can sort of rechart my course if I veer too much to this side or to that side. I can know about the things that will actually correlate with my doing well um, if if I have that sort of within the context of my life. So if I if all I know is that the value of, you know, the, the latest filter that I put on my, you know, snap or whatever it is, because it really matters to me how good I look in this picture. And by the way, you're allowed to want to look good. Like, I don't think that's a crime. We all want to look good, right? But it, I think it gets problematic when we take it to an extreme and when it becomes so inauthentic, it like, we don't even recognize ourselves. Um, but if I know, if I think that that's the thing that matters the most, as we say here in Israel, hachi, hachi, then like I've, I've completely lost track of things. But I can still want to look really good in that picture or want people to think that I'm friends with so-and-so, but also realize how much empathy matters and optimism matters and gratitude matters and mindfulness matters. So I can still be sort of caught up in the world of it, but that might not be my whole world. I might have more... Um, mm-hmm 
more depth, more breath. And, and I may even catch myself as I'm getting tired of it. Like another thing to look at, another thing to scroll, another, whatever I might remind myself, Oh, I I can actually practice that mindfulness thing, you know, that I learned about, or let me think about this, you know, optimism thing or, or whatever it is that somebody might be learning about. Um, I think it, when you, when you know what the goal is and you know how to get there, it's easier to get there. It doesn't mean we always do, Mm -hmm. but I think it's much easier to get there when we know what the steps are. So it gives you a different perspective of how to look at social media. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That's really cool. So like you, like we were talking about before, you've like had seminars or you taught across, I guess, like across North America and Israel. So based on your experience, are people all over the world facing the same social media challenges? Yeah, I think they are. I think there's certain places that sort of have it dialed up more than others, but I haven't found that any one community has like a unique challenge. I think it's a, it's a somewhat universal um, mm-hmm. challenge. I think different communities are dealing with it in different ways um, and to different degrees, but it, it is universal. You know, in Israel, um, there are a lot of things that we could make fun of <laughs> um, and we do about life here. Um, but one of the things that's really amazing um, is like childhood and adolescence here is much more carefree than it is in the States. And this would be like an entirely other episode on an entirely different podcast about why that might be, but it has a lot to do with just independence and safety and economics and a thousand different factors. Um, But one of the things that ends up happening is that, um, I don't remember the exact statistic, but an enormous percentage of Israeli, Israeli adolescents are involved in a youth movement. And that means that um, there are expectations of them and there are standards that they have to meet and there are different social norms. And of course, Israeli kids are on their phones and of course there's, you know, bullying and sexting and all kinds of bad stuff is happening. But it, I think it's not as severe as it is in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of going back to the iGen research, Israelis are out. I mean, not during Corona, but Israeli kids, if you've ever been here, you know, they're like children wandering the streets. And yeah. like, oh my God, where are their parents, right? But like teenagers, like you know, the city they think of as their backyard. And so they're out and they're doing things and they're planning things and they're running things and they're given leadership opportunities at really young ages. And a lot of them do really, really well with that. So for sure we're on our phones too much. For sure there's like really bad stuff happening, but I think it happens in different degrees and in different ways in Israel than it does in the States. And, you know, you can compare, I don't know, between LA, Chicago, Boca and Teaneck you know, there are probably a lot of similarities in terms of how your average 10th grader, let's say, mm-hmm. is dealing with social media. But, you know, every community has its own set of, you know, dynamics, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's a somewhat universal challenge. Yeah. I kind of expected that answer. I didn't, like, I didn't really think that you would talk about, like, in Israel, that's really interesting that, because I know, I know there are some kids from Israel in my camp, and they're all part of this, like, certain organization i think it, i don't know what it is it like b'nai kiva there's or, b'nai kiva there's ezra there's sophie yeah. and there's like a million yeah there's a ton and i know like some of my friends friends from israel like i know they're all part of this thing and like on sunday that's or whatever day it is i don't know when it is but they tuesday. always tuesday 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 <laughs> um yeah so i really think it's funny. i think they should do that here like i it would be amazing harder. it's a lot harder but i honestly think they should because no like we don't have any i mean besides for I don't really do anything. Like I want to do something. Mm-hmm. Like, um, 
Also, no, it's great. It's really great. Do you know, Tuesdays across the country, schools end early. It's a half day every Tuesday because Tuesday is Yom Tanuat Noar. It's youth group day. So like school ends early. And if you're in, I don't know, you're learning the flute or you're in a karate class or whatever, those are always on Tuesdays. And then in the afternoon and evening is across the country is youth group. Um, and then very often it's also on Friday night and also on Shabbos afternoon. So it ends up giving a structure that's like super social. And in Israel, it's super outdoorsy. Um, it's, it's, and again, of course we have social media problems. Of course, of course we have cell phone issues. Like for sure, for sure, for sure. But I think it shows up in different ways. Yeah, um, that's just one example. You know, I think if we compared Chinese adolescents, we would see something, we would see something different there as well, you know. Yeah, there's obviously different factors that go into it based on like the environment and everything. But I actually want to move to Israel now because of that. That's so cool. I mean, a little known secret that I'm now blasting to your entire audience is like a huge chunk of why we came obviously was Zionism. I would say another huge chunk is the food, like no question. Like a big motivating factor for us was how we wanted to raise our kids. And it's like, yeah, there's like Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah and whatever, but like kids are generally really safe and healthy here. It's like a really healthy way to grow up. Um, So if anybody's on the fence, you can send the snefesh benefesh. But it's, it's a really great place to raise kids. Yeah, it also makes everyone more of an individual, I feel like, because even for my experience, we're, we're going to school, we're coming home, we're doing work, we're, like, I have time to, I, like, have time to do soccer and whatever else I do, yearbook, but, like, I don't have that much time to actually, like, really enjoy myself, and if I do, it comes at the cost of either my grades or my athletics or whatever it is, so I think it's really cool that they have a specific time that everyone does whatever they need to do and that people can find themselves in that way because they don't feel the pressure to kind of throw something else out the window in order to find themselves. I think that's great. hundred percent. Well, we have a spot for you here. Whenever yeah. you're ready to come, we have a spot for you. <laughs> so do you have any advice for my peers and me or any parents that are listening about how they should go about social media? I mean, I'm really not like an advice person. I'm like super uncomfortable with the notion that like, I don't know, I would have advice to give. But with that said, I can say based on, let's say, um, anecdotal experience, let's say in my practice or working with different families and schools and communities all over the U.S., I think like we really cannot lose sight of the enormous value of human interaction Mm -hmm. um that like that's the whole story guys like the whole thing is about connection Mm -hmm. and if we think we're connecting because we're connecting online like we all know that's not actually connecting Mm -hmm. right um and you know teenagers make it seem like they don't want to connect with their parents they do Mm -hmm. parents are exhausted at the end of a long day so they just want to like shut the world off but like we all need it it's the thing that animates all of us um I am not advocating getting rid of social media. I would not advocate getting rid of all of our our screens. I might put some of them on timers, but that's another story. Um, But I I really think we can't underestimate the value of those human interactions um, and how good they are for the other person that we're interacting with and selfishly how how good they are for me when I'm the person interacting. Um, I just, I just think that's the base of like everything. Um, So, if I were to give advice, which I don't, um, it would it would be something about like remembering how critical yeah. those connections really are. Yeah. 
I really agree with you because at the end of the day, like we can't just hide behind our phone to have a serious conversation, to break up with someone. Like that's just not how it works. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, we didn't even talk about like, you know, dating on social media and all that stuff and dating over FaceTime, which is like, you know, I spend a lot of my time <laughs> during the day. If I'm working with 18 and 19 year olds, I spend yeah. a lot of time talking about that. It's tough. It's really tough. And what we really crave is that connection, mm -hmm. you know, and family is needed and friendships needed. And we need to remember how to connect with God. And, you know, one of the first, first, first things we're told in the Torah is like, it's not good for us to be alone. Like, it's not how we're made, you know. So if that's the basis of everything, I think, you know, it might be easier to just you know, just sit there and go on a screen. But I think it's much better for us in the long term and in the short term if we seek out those connections. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, thank you so much. This was really amazing. Thanks and so much for having me. Have you on. Yeah, this was amazing. So bye, guys. <laughs> I don't know how to end them. I don't know how to end them. <laughs> we can end it awkwardly, not awkwardly, <laughs> however you want. <laughs> right. Bye. Okay, wait.